0: So let's um, recap before starting on today's uh, theme. So far we've sketched what um, I think the Buddha meant by experience. We saw how that was synonymous to what he calls uh, it all or the all how that is another way of talking about uh, loka, the world, what's happening. How we might think of that in phenomenological language as being in the world. How that might approximate also to what we call life in the largest sense of that term. And yesterday we passed that up, we in a way broke that up into what is called nama rupa, and how nama rupa is the condition for vijnana, for consciousness. And that breakup is done specifically in order to give us, uh, as it were, a kind of frame of reference. For the practice uh, of the Dharma which we're going to explore as we continue in the next days into the Eightfold Path for example. And so the way the Buddha uh, uh, parses, I think that's the best word experience or life or what's happening is into Areas that we can, as it were, pay attention to for specific reasons. So we start with grounding our experience in the sensory world itself. Noticing how that sensory world impacts us through contact. How that generates a subjective feeling of liking, disliking pleasure, pain. In other words, experience is always emotionally coloured. Experience, likewise, is something that makes sense. It's constructed out of perceptions that we have learnt over our upbringing, our childhood, our studies, our Uh, various skills that we've developed, so that we read the world in a certain way. Of how the world, or being in the world, is always an environment or a context for doing something. We're constantly alert to uh, respond to what's happening, either instinctively, react through reactivity, Or through reflection and choice and decision, making, say, a moral choice. And how also we experience the world in such a way that we're constantly, as it were, settling or focusing or attending to a particular feature. Again, either instinctively, we hear a bird call, or through deliberate concentration on our breath. And we might take that deeply into uh, a much greater focus of concentration. And how all of that holds together in what is called consciousness, or we might translate that simply as awareness. Uh, A sense of coherence, of cohesion, of totality that can't be reduced to any one of those elements. We're aware of the sounds as much as we're aware of perceiving them as a bird, as we are aware of how we're focusing or being distracted. We're aware of what's rising up that's prompting us to think or speak or act. But today we're going to look at exactly this same Uh, material, in another term that's synonymous to the all, the um, life, what's happening, the world, being in the world, and that is the term dukkha, usually translated as suffering. But I'm going to try not to translate it. I'm not suggesting suffering is wrong, but it somehow is too narrow. Uh, it's a very tricky term, but it's a very important one. And a Dukkha uh, covers exactly the same territory. And we find in um, the first discourse uh, the classical definition of what constitutes Dukkha. And the Buddha says, this is Dukkha, birth, is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. These five bundles of clinging are dukkha. So again, it's quite explicit that dukkha refers to the five bundles of clinging. And I'll just run through those again. They are, again, just another way, a less uh, elaborate way of describing nama-rupa-vijnana. In other words, the first bundle is translated as form again, but its materiality, the sense objects, the body. Feeling, again we see that in nama rupa. Perception, we see that in nama rupa. And then we get inclination. In nama rupa this is called intention. But inclination, sankhara, we mentioned that yesterday, usually translated as mental formations. But remember that it is very specifically that which is active in our experience. It's what inclines us to think, or say, or do something. And it includes both uh, negative and what we would call positive uh, mental processes. It, it, there, there is greed as well as love. They're all included in sankara. It's that which does the doing. The organizing, the acting, the responding. And then the fifth of the bundles is consciousness, which again is what we looked at yesterday. (coughs) So it's exactly the same territory. The only ones it doesn't name are contact, which of course is the precondition for feeling, and what links us into the sensory and inner world. And attention, which is again a sankara. One of the inclinations. So today, I'm going to be talking more in terms of the five bundles. That's the, or I'm going to call them bundles rather than aggregates. Whenever I hear the word aggregate, I think of building materials. (laughs) Uh, And in in um, in uh, cognitive science and modern philosophy, they actually talk about. Uh, b- bundle theories of self. In other words, the self is a set of bundles, quite independent of Buddhism. And I think it works rather well here. And We're going to be looking today at where the self fits into all of this. So I'm going to stick to the word bundle. But, so Dukkha somehow characterizes the totality of our experience. But the Buddha starts by, I think, making a rather crucial uh, point that we haven't really looked at yet. That what we've described and what we've experienced, what we've noticed in meditation is happening always to someone who was born, is subject to breakdown, sickness, both physical, mental, is going to age, or is aging, perhaps we should say. <laughs> in fact, technically, uh, in some Buddhist texts, aging begins the moment after you're born. In other words, it's just a way of talking about the fact that as soon as you're born, or as soon as you're conceived, basically, you're, 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 you, you enter into a process of change that will culminate in your death. And that process of change is aging. Although we can, of course, distinguish between youth and middle age and old age and so on. And, of course, death. So, in other words, this um, uh, perspective um, makes this nama rupa vinyana, the five bundles and so on, um, rather crucially and poignantly about you and me. And remember, also, in the legend of the Buddha, um, this is what triggered his whole quest for awakening, seeing sickness, aging, and death. In other words, we need to now uh, uh, integrate into this uh, uh, vision of the world the fact that it is um, intimately about what we care about the most, namely ourselves, me, and you. And this is described really in acknowledging the fact that we were born into this. At one point, in my case nearly 59 years ago, I was not here. And at some point further down the road, I will not be here again. So, again, it's it's self-evident in a way. We all know that we were born. We all have birthdays. But it's worth, I think, reflecting on the fact that um, we're here at all. We take it so much for granted that we don't actually... Um, uh, recognize, unless our life is threatened, that we're here. In, um, in the language of, of Heidegger, uh, he says it feels as though we've been thrown here. We've been geworfen. We've been chucked here. And one day we kind of realize and wake up to the fact that you know, we were somehow catapulted into this world. We don't know where we came from if we came from anywhere. We certainly didn't have any choice in the matter. we It really does feel as though we were somehow uh, just sort of projected into this strange thing that's going on now called experience, it all, life, being in the world. So it's worth reflecting on that. Trying to wake up to the fact that we have been born. And as soon as we become conscious of having been born, almost inevitably, we realize that we will be ejected or rejected from this world, this life, uh, just as unceremoniously as we were born here. And this, of course, is something quite... um, I mean it's so central to our experience and yet at the same time we seem to um, somehow avoid looking at that. You see in the legend of the Buddha I don't think it's realistic to believe that he literally went outside his palace and then for the very first time in his life he saw an old person or a sick person. I mean obviously he had had a cold, his, his father would have been kind of old, his mother had died. But what the legend or the myth tells us is that there, is a, there are certain moments in our life when we suddenly wake up to the fact that this is our condition, that this is life. And it can be rather unsettling. It can be profoundly unsettling. But that's the pitch at which the practice of the Dhamma resonates. It's concerned with responding authentically to that primary existential reality of being here and yet always being towards our own end. And the emphasis in Buddhism on impermanence is crucially about embracing the impermanence of our own condition. Of course it's true we can see impermanence in the flow of the river and in the bubbling of the thoughts, but basically what is impermanent is ourselves. We're only here temporarily. And one of the most effective meditations I did while I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk was a daily contemplation on the certainty of death, recognizing that death is the only thing in the future that I can be sure of, everything else is uncertain. And at the same time, reflecting on the fact that this one certain thing is totally uncertain as to when it will occur. There's a kind of strange paradox here. Um, Heidegger picks up on this too, but again, without knowing any of the Buddhism. This one certain thing is uncertain. It could happen at any moment. And we know this intellectually, we probably have friends who had sudden, you know, suddenly died from a heart attack or a car crash. We somehow think that we're exempt, that it's only the other people who die. Which in a very naive sense is true. But of course we are just as vulnerable, just as um, susceptible uh, to that ending. Now, these certainly are meditations to to practice, to to, to bring to bear on our experience. It somehow personalizes a lot of the Buddhist teaching, which can talk about impermanence and suffering and not-self. But we constantly need to apply that reflection to how we are actually experiencing ourselves here and now we're not talking in the abstract here at all. These are highly concrete suggestions for reflection and not just to think about them but to somehow internalize this feeling of transience in a way that it becomes a kind of a second sense, second nature We kind of begin more and more to be sensitized to this dimension of experience. Now, although Dukkha is usually, of course, translated as suffering, which is not incorrect at all, it's misleading in the sense that it makes us think that all of our experience is suffering, which it clearly isn't. I think Martin spoke a bit about this last night. But there's a passage that I came across somewhat recently where the Buddha himself um, uh, criticizes one of his uh, followers for thinking that everything about life is suffering. He's actually talking to a man called Mahali, who was an old uh, friend of his. Uh, He was a layman from the uh, Lichavi Republic. And he, he tells Mahali, he says, if Mahali, form, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness, the five bundles, were exclusively dukkha, immersed in dukkha, steeped in dukkha, and if they were also not steeped in pleasure, immersed in pleasure, uh, uh, um, also, yeah, immersed in pleasure, beings would not become enamored of them. It's kind of obvious, really. I mean, if everything were miserable, why would you become attached to it? <laughs> and why would you become involved in it and want to keep it? I, I, this is a remarkable passage because it's the Buddha himself is responding to the, exactly the kind of objection that people still. Um, uh, give to this idea that everything is dukkha. He says everything is equally sukkha. Otherwise it wouldn't be enjoyable. We wouldn't become attached to it. But because these bundles are pleasurable, he says, beings become enamored of them. And by being enamored of them, they are captivated by them or seduced by them. And by being captivated by them, they become disturbed by them. So this gives a very um, important uh, qualification uh, to the idea of dukkha. In some ways, I think it might be more useful just to translate dukkha as life. And it kind of works, actually. This is life. Birth, that's life. Aging, that's life. Sickness, that's life. Death, that's life too. Encountering what's not dear, well, that's life. Separation from what is dear, that's life. Not getting what you want, well, that's life. (laughs) (laughs) So we do use the word life um, in a very similar way to, I think, the way the Buddha is using the word dukkha. And the five bundles are basically life. The nama rupa vinyana, that's life. So perhaps we should consider actually downplaying this notion of dukkha and maybe thinking more in terms of life. And again, it fits rather well a secular approach to Buddhism is an approach to Buddhism that is concerned with our coming to terms with life, this life not some past or future life, but the life we're actually experiencing here and now. So, what is it then, in terms of our our meditation practice, that we do vis-a-vis life? And the Buddha has a very um, uh, specific term for this. Uh, in, in Pali, it's pari-nya, P-A-R-I-N-N-A, nya, but the Ns have little Spanish flicks over them. What are they called? Not macron, some other little word, never mind. pari like senor, pari-nya. nya nya means to know, and pari means fully or totally. And the Buddha, again, one of the many, many passages in which he uh, explains what it means to be awake or fully awake. He says, I did not consider myself to be fully awake until I had fully known the five bundles. So awakening is not here clearly about becoming awake to nirvana or the unconditioned, but it's a waking up to the complexity and the reality of one's life. So, the question I think that needs to be asked is what does it mean to fully know life, dukkha, it all. And again he gives a a very clear definition. He says, and what bhikkhus is full knowing or full understanding? And he says, it's the ending of greed the ending of hatred, and the ending of confusion. This is called parinya, fully knowing. The ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. Again, that sounds a little strange. I think we have to try to imagine what that might mean. To me, it points to a knowing, an understanding, that... Um, is founded in a kind of radiant equanimity. It's It's a knowing in which greed has ended, hatred has ended, and confusion has ended. So he's not talking about a knowing that is, for example, about getting more information about something or having, let's say, a comprehensive knowledge of the human body and the environment and the organism and consciousness and the brain. Once again, knowing here has to do very much with a particular way we can cultivate our awareness of experience. And I think it's in this sort of um, uh, dimension that the Buddhist approach parts company with, say, humanism. I don't think in humanism you would be somehow encouraged to cultivate a highly specific kind of knowing that requires a considerable degree of effort and practice and commitment throughout your life to realize. So fully knowing dukkha is about trying to come to an understanding of your experience that's not Um, dictated or influenced or colored by your attachments nor is it colored by your aversions nor is it clouded by a kind of confusion we'll come back to this confusion the word is moha which could also be translated as a sort of darkness a, a dullness an opacity of mind and that's why I think it's useful perhaps to think of it as a kind of uh, a, a radiance. I mean, the Buddha does use this word, citta," uh, radiant mind, luminous mind. And I think what that points to is that once we, in a sense, uh, free ourselves from our obsessive attachments and clingings and opinions and ideas and views, all of which have the quality of sort of fixing our attention, dulling our attention, when that dullness begins to be eroded, it opens up an awareness that's much brighter. And I feel that this is often an experience one has on retreat, is that as the mind gets more still, as we begin to look at ourselves and our experience more carefully, more quietly, more penetratingly, the world becomes brighter. The world becomes illuminated. Uh, The colours and the sounds and the smells and the tastes become somehow enhanced. And I think this is what's being spoken of here as, uh, as a knowing in which that confusion and that dullness is somehow dissipating. And also, as we practice, we try not to... uh, We we become more and more alert to how, if something is agreeable or pleasant, we rush after it. If it's undisagreeable or unpleasant, we recoil from it. We try to push it away. We get into this push-pull business with attraction and aversion. So when that begins to die down again through the cultivation of mindfulness and attention, when we learn to live more lightly with our views and opinions, all of this leads to um, a more equanimous, a more settled awareness, but also one uh, that is brighter, somehow more radiant. And this extends not only just to our own Experience in our body, uh, in what's impinging our senses, but also it opens us up to the suffering, the dukkha, the life of others. See, part of the problem with egoism, which we'll come to in a minute, is that it has a tendency not only to, to, to preoccupy us with our sense of me. But when we do that, when we become too self-preoccupied, that also affectively cuts us off from how others feel. Uh, And that's not just our immediate friends and our fellow retreatants, but also particularly people who are outside the range of me and mine, the stranger. Um, the, the birds and the bees and the animals and the, uh, the, the snakes and the leeches and the ticks and <laughs> all things that are alive. We become more sensitized to the fact that they too are trying to survive. So again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opening up of a sensibility um, that is far more empathetic. So this fully knowing of dukkha this dropping away of attachment and aversion, this more more bright and radiant mind is also opening us up to empathy. And empathy, the capacity to feel the suffering of the other, is the foundation for love and compassion. This was very clearly presented in my Tibetan training, which I found very, very important, actually. Uh, The the foundation for love, compassion is empathy. If you don't empathize with the other, if you don't really feel the other's pain, a phrase that's almost impossible to use now because Bill Clinton said it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel your pain. If we we don't really do that, then we can say, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering as much as you like, And I don't think it's going to go very deep. Uh, This empathetic awareness, I feel, is very, very central. And it's part of the practice of fully knowing dukkha. It comes of playing around. There we go. I'm reading from my iPad, which I've never (laughs) done before. Now, a further way we can go into this idea of uh, of fully knowing dukkha is to become more and more attuned to its impermanence, which we already mentioned and Martin has spoken of, to be more and more aware of its tragic dimension, its unreliability, the fact that there's no way we can organize the elements of our life and our world to suit me, and thereby provide me with some sort of permanent basis for well-being. This is a strategy which is very, very deeply embedded in us, but basically it doesn't work. In the end, we'll get bored, or we'll get frustrated, or things will change, or we will change, and we're back once again on this treadmill of trying to get what we want and get rid of what we don't like. Now, there's some, you know, necessary value to doing that. But at an existential level, it ain't going to work. But also this leads us into this question of anatta, of not-self. It's sometimes translated wrongly as no-self. And you read again and again, and you'll probably hear also, that the Buddha taught there was no-self. Well, I don't think that's the case. The text that perhaps um, is the first um, record we have of the Buddha's teaching on Anatta is the second discourse he gave uh, after the one on the Four Noble Truths. And this is what he says. He says, this body is not self. If it were, it would not get sick. You could tell your body, be like this, don't be like that. But because the body is not self, it does get sick. You cannot tell it, be like this, or don't be like that. Now, strangely, that text is not widely known. Uh, And the teachings on no self, as it almost invariably uh, is presented, Um, uh, suggest it's about seeing through the fact that there really is no one here. There's just these bundles of stuff rising and falling. But that's not what's being said. In fact, the Buddha nuances this in 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 a very curious way. He says, if the body really were you, then you should be able to somehow be in charge of what the body does but you can't. I mean, we all know this. We get, you know, I desperately don't want to have a cold when I'm on retreat, but basically there's very little I can do about it. And I'll end up getting a cold or I'll end up, you know, finding I've actually got something much worse than a cold. In other words, what this not-self idea is pointing to is not the absence of self, which is not mentioned at all, but rather the fact that we live in a world that is not under our control, or very minimally under our control. And this applies also to our feelings, perceptions, impulses or inclinations, and consciousness. These things happen. There's nothing that, in a way, I can do to stop them from happening. When I come into this room, it's already given to me, perceptually, as full of you guys with all the things that are going on in it, that's given to me. I come into this room and I feel a certain way. I can't, as it were, say, oh, I don't want to feel depressed this morning, I want to feel happy. You can't do that. It's a given. Um, How we respond to a large extent is given as well. Thoughts and emotions and reactions bubble up. And we see this in meditation all the time. You know, you want to be focused on your breath, and nice and calm and peaceful, but the body is saying, sorry, that's not on the agenda today. (laughs) Other stuff's going to be happening. And you don't have much uh, clue as what it's going to be. But it's just going to happen. Now, we don't want to go too far down this track to the point where we actually have no choice in the matter at all. Otherwise, these teachings would be redundant. But it does, I think... A point to how this sense of, of me and mine is very much about being in control. It's very much about this being my stuff. Of course, it's my stuff because it's not your stuff, but there's nothing much I can do about it. It simply happens. You know, we grow old, we get ill, we die. This happens. That we hear sounds, we <laughs> Uh, have perceptions and thoughts and feelings, and these things happen. So there's something we embrace in this notion of anatta, not self, which is in a sense a kind of letting go into the sheer arising and passing of life itself. It's a kind of relinquishing of being the controller This is actually an idea you find in the Upanishads. The Atman in the Upanishads is sometimes called the controller. The one in charge. The Buddha seems to be saying, actually there isn't anyone in charge. That we're in a condition that is happening to us. That's unfolding and vanishing. And yet we're constantly resisting that. It's very difficult to accept that. One of the things that often happens in meditation is when you observe the breath you get to a point where you suddenly notice the breath just happens. As soon as you become conscious of breathing when you do mindfulness of breath that very often has the the effect of somehow uh, restricting or or putting a break on the breathing. It becomes more forced. There's a kind of a, a, a tightening in the body in the mind. But as you get more used to it, you find that you, just as it were, rise and fall with the breath itself. And there's something rather strangely liberating about that. To actually be able to just give yourself to the unfolding of life. And then the Buddha continues, therefore monks, whether it be a past, a present or future body, one's own or someone else's body. Sorry, this thing keeps switching off. (coughs) Ah. A distant or close body, each body should be seen with true understanding as it occurs, this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. And so it is with any feeling, perception, inclination or consciousness. Each should be seen with true understanding as it occurs. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. But that doesn't mean that you don't exist. That there is no you. This is the tricky bit. And I think one of the... um, most succinct expressions of the notion of self-slash-not-self we find in Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna. And I'm just going to read you one verse. If the five bundles were me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me at all. That's rather succinct. Let's try to unpack that. If the five bundles were me, I would come and go like them. In other words, if my my body, my feelings, my perceptions, inclinations, consciousness, if that were really me, then I would be as transitory and as fluid as them. But I'm not. Nagarjuna accepts that, in fact, your sense of who you are is a kind of a fic, relatively fixed context, it doesn't change with the fluid changes of your body and mind. This is rather strange. The tendency is to think, oh well the self therefore must be somehow more real. But the paradox is that if I was something else, in other words, if I were different from my body, my feelings, my perceptions, my inclinations, my consciousness. Then, those things would say nothing about me at all. In other words, the language we have, which is the language of identity and difference, I either am something or I am not something. I'm either the same as something or I'm different from something, is inadequate to account for the curiously, ambiguous nature of experience. So if, if I were the same as my body and mind, then I should be as impermanent and changing as my body and mind. But clearly I'm not. Because I'm the one who's always around, who seems to have these things. But if I systematically took away my body, took away my feelings, took away my perceptions, took away my inclinations, took away my consciousness, what would be left? How would I ever be able to know anything about me? How would you be able to know anything about me? In other words, you can't imagine a self that exists separately from your body and mind. And you can't imagine a self that's identical to them. It's neither the same nor different. So what Nagarjuna is pointing to is, um, is the essential ambiguity of, who, of what we are. The self is a highly ambiguous idea. It's not non existent, but as soon as you try to specify what it is, every alternative fails. Now, this verse is an important one, at least in the Tibetan tradition. It was on reading this verse that, that Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Geluk school, had his first great insight. Uh, th- this particular verse. It's verse 1, chapter 13, in the Mula Madhyamaka Karika. So I find that, uh, I- I found that very helpful, that verse. Um, it gets beyond the dichotomy of either affirming or denying the existence of self. Self cannot be pinned down either as being or non-being. And in that sense, it's empty. That's what Nagarjuna means by empty. Now this is again very much part of the process of um, fully knowing experience. It has to do with quietening or let's say detaching yourself from your attractions and attachments and clingings and wantings. It's also not slipping into the other extreme of saying, life is suffering, life is miserable, get me out of here. It's finding a balance and equanimity in which one can then consider the impermanence, the tragic nature, the unreliability of life, how it can never be organized in a way to finally give you permanent well-being. And also, when we go more deeply into this experience, we find that it is not me, not mine, it's simply happening, emerging and passing. And when we look at it more closely, we find that nor is there an I that exists independently of all this stuff. So it starts to become kind of weird (laughs) And um, I think terms like mysterious and rather astonishing come to mind. That I feel this kind of awareness, although this is not the language of the early texts, is actually about a practice that opens us up to the sublimity of what's going on. Sublimity or sublime is not the same as beautiful, It's um, this experience we have sometimes in nature of how experience exceeds our capacity for representation. It it breaks the... It it cannot be contained or represented in thought or ideas or concepts. it's, It's excessive. And yet the mind is constantly trying to pin it down. But in trying to pin it down, we actually dull it we actually reduce it. We actually, in a sense, alienate ourselves. And this is where we can start to talk about our, um, let's say, our habitual relationship to this life, um, which does, as it were, produce a kind of alienated uh, experience. And the term the Buddha uses for this is called um, samudaya, which means um, the uprising or the arising. And what it is that arises is craving, tanha, which again is a difficult word to translate and it might be a good idea not to translate it, tanha. That the Buddha's analysis of experience is one that shows that for a for the most part perhaps, we're not fully knowing or embracing what's going on but we're actually almost fleeing from it. That our habitual reaction is to somehow step back, to avoid, to deny, to cut off from what's going on. And this is not a conscious choice, it's not something we decide to do one day but it's somehow built into the actual organism itself. It's talking about what might nowadays be named the the flight-fight response. In other words, a primary instinctual survival drive. Now, the Buddha doesn't use that language. But tanha has, or craving, I think, operates at that level of instinct. It's very, very much uh, the root of our reactivity so rather than embrace what's going on as we've been describing up to now there is a very deep tendency to um, uh, to, to react in such a way that we cut ourselves off from this experience. This is the Buddha's definition of of what arises in the face of life he says, this is the arising. It is craving, or tanha, which is repetitive. You might have noticed. Wallowing in attachment and greed. In other words, you know, totally preoccupied with getting you know, what I want out of this. Obsessively indulging in this and that. In other words, rather than embracing the totality of our experience, we hone in on particular instants and details and become obsessed and preoccupied with that. In other words, we totally narrow the field. And that narrowing then becomes repetitive, or vice versa. In other words, it's, it's narrowing, it's repetitive, there's a kind of wallowing or indulgence. And then the Buddha talks of three kinds of tanha, craving for stimulation. Craving for existence and craving for non-existence. So what does that mean? These are karma tanha, which means perhaps the craving which is driven by sensory stimulation. We're basically in search of kicks and thrills. And they might be kicks and thrills of a thoroughly... sense your nature, or they might be kicks and thrills we get out of studying astrophysics. Whatever it might be, we're looking for something that's going to excite us, that's going to stimulate us, that's going to give us something that breaks the monotony and the boredom. So there's that constant craving for stimulation. Craving for existence, I think, is rather more this sort of deep um, yearning to persist, to not change, to not die fundamentally. It's this longing, this um, yearning uh, to to continue, uh, to not budge, to be the same, to not be undermined. And a lot of this, I think, has to do with the um, notion or the, the sense we have of wanting to know what our place is. In other words, we're very. If you look at your fantasies in meditation, very often they tell you about the kind of craving that's going on. A lot of it has to do with, you know, my position in the world, what other people think about me, um, you know, my um, identity, let's say, with a particular place or a particular um, community or a particular whatever it might be, football team. It has to do also with being uh, preoccupied with my beliefs and opinions, my religious beliefs. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a liberal. I'm a Marxist. Uh, I'm a this, I'm a that. That's all about this craving to exist. To somehow exist means to stand out, literally. ex sister. We, we kind of feel the need to stand out. We feel the need to somehow be someone to whom others pay attention. It's very, very, you know, very deeply ingrained and possibly something we'll never entirely highly get rid of. It's, it's too deep for that, perhaps. And then when, it, it's often only when uh, we lose our job, for example, or our marriage breaks down, or someone close to us dies, that we then, as it were, are thrust into a much more immediate and uh, uh, sort of undisguised encounter with life, with it all, with the world. And that can be very threatening, very uh, destabilizing. But what, in a sense, we do in this practice is to re-familiarize ourselves, to open ourselves to that world that we are instinctively resisting by our clinging craving for stimulation, uh, craving to be someone. And when these strategies sometimes fail, we slip into a kind of depression and we want to end it all. We can't stand the the fact of not being someone special or not getting what we want. Ultimately, we might consider suicide. So there is a a sense in this uh, craving that it is as much to do with wanting to be, wanting to exist, as it is with occasionally not wanting to exist or wanting not to exist. So all of that is covered by this term tanha. Now tanha um, then, as it were, crystallizes into um, our primary preoccupation with me. And there's a very lovely passage I found, again, quite recently. It's a dialogue between a monk called Punga Mantaniputta, not terribly well known, who was the first preceptor of Ananda, who became the Buddha's, who was the Buddha's cousin, who then became his, uh, his secretary, his assistant. And this is how Ananda remembers um, what Punga Mantaniputta uh, told him about the nature of clinging. Remember, craving and clinging are very closely connected. Craving is often said to be what gives rise to clinging. And we saw in the definition of dukkha, the Buddha says, these five bundles of clinging are dukkha. So what does clinging mean? Upadana. This is Pungamantani Putta's understanding of clinging. He says, it is by clinging, Ananda, that I am occurs, not without clinging. It is by clinging to form, clinging to feelings, clinging to perceptions, clinging to inclinations and clinging to consciousness that I am occurs. Suppose, Ananda, a young woman or a man, youthful and fond of ornaments, would examine her own facial image in a mirror or in a bowl filled with pure, clean water. She would look at it with clinging, not without clinging. So too, it is by clinging to form, etc., that I am occurs. Now, of course, for us, in in our culture, uh, this is the image of Narcissus. Uh, the, the, the Greek um, god who is infatuated with his own image in a pool of water. So what seems to be said here is that the, this craving, this, uh, uh, this deep reactive uh, flight from the sublimity of experience crystallizes into a kind of narcissism, uh, a narcissistic preoccupation, like a a young dandy or a a young supermodel looking at themselves in a mirror. And we all know about that. Um, I found recently that I don't get that experience when I look in a mirror anymore. (laughs) But um, (laughs) if I were young and beautiful, I probably would. But but again, it's interesting to note that he compares the mirror or the pure bowl of water uh, to the um, bundles. When we consider our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our inclinations, our our, our overall consciousness, we see ourselves reflected back. And we do so in a way in which we have a kind of narcissistic um, preoccupation with them with my feelings and my perceptions, my views, my uh, my aspirations, my desires. All of these are somehow uh, imaging, uh, showing us a kind of glorified uh, sense of me uh, in a way that is is, is basically seductive, um, intoxicating and deeply self-referential. And I feel that, again, we often find through the practice of meditation, particularly at the beginning, we become aware of how self-centered we are, of how much uh, the world and our experience is basically reflecting back an image of me. Now, the Buddhist analysis of this clinging, or this kind of narcissism, is that it's rooted in this craving craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence, which is our primary reaction, what the Buddha calls what primarily arises, as our uh, way of dealing with life, with the world, with dukkha, with the five aggregates, with nama-rupa-vinyana. And so we can see here, I think, the, the importance... Uh, and also the great uh, challenge of the of, of this practice of repeatedly coming back to our primary experience of life itself, prior to the the arising of craving and clinging, and the narcissism that that um, gives rise to. And so it's very difficult, it's very counterintuitive, it's very much going against our habitual uh, conditioning. Is to keep coming back to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, how that impacts us, how we feel about it, how we see it, perceive it, how we are moved to respond to it, how we are aware of it, how we attend to it and just staying there. And that's what we do on a retreat like this. This is the basic uh, mindfulness practice that requires commitment and effort um, and determination just to constantly return, constantly go against that tendency to, to run away into craving, clinging, etc. So tomorrow I'll um, continue with this theme by um, seeing how that fits into the framework of the Four Noble Truths. In fact, what I've done, some of you probably noticed, is I've basically explained the first two Noble Truths, uh, Dukkha and Tanha. Thank you.